The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Fold is brought to you by O-Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa. No mai, hoki mai, ki the Fold e mihi ne, ko Duncan Greer tōku ingoa. This week, uh, I'm doing something a bit different. I had plans, big plans, uh, to, to talk about the state of the live music industry and uh, we're just throwing them all away because yesterday, as I record this, a little less than 24 hours ago, uh, our Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, announced a resignation in uh, very shocking and, and unexpected terms and... You know, obviously that's a multi-dimensional news event. It's always quite galvanizing in a newsroom when something like that happens as you sort of process all of the different uh, ways it impacts the country. Um, but on the fold, I talk about the media, obviously, and I wanted to have a conversation uh, about Jacinda Ardern and the media because I've written about this at, at various times over the years. I think, you know, my theory is that she was maybe the greatest communicator of her age anywhere and that, you know, it, you, to, to understand her and to appreciate her, you kind of have to keep that in mind. And I think for, for the media to have someone who is so adept um, and had to do so much communicating, that, that was just quite a, a different kind of situation. So, so what I'm going to do is I've got uh, Toby Manhire, who was uh, our editor for most of her period as Prime Minister and host of Gone by Lunchtime, one of the, the best, most cerebral political analysts we have, and also someone who worked for The Guardian uh, for many years, so has, has seen multiple different, very prominent leaders up close. But I'm also getting his uh, successor as editor, Madeline Chapman, who... You know, a, a brilliant writer and, and deep thinker, but also someone who literally wrote the book on Jacinda Ardern. Uh, and so I think that they both have really different and, and interesting perspectives to share on uh, the, this this kind of relationship between Ardern and the media. And I, I guess I want to, just before we get into that, just to kind of talk about my own kind of perspective on, on all this, because which... Um, I've written up into into a sort of a, a little essay that that will be on the spinoff by the time this runs. I mean, there, there was this whole theory of Jacinda Ardern that existed before, well, while she was a, an MP, but before she was in any kind of leadership position within Labour, she was quite prominent from the start. She was always good at media. You know, her and Simon Bridges, when they were, I think, in their... 20s or, or early 30s were both on breakfast and had a good little thing going. Um, she, you would see her at events. Like, she, you know, she was into the same kind of cultural stuff as a lot of uh, the journalists of my generation were almost the same age. And she was always this, like, cool MP. She, like, 
you know, dressed well. She'd show up. You could chat to her. She'd sort of, you know, she was engaged on on Twitter and so on. But the the theory of her from the kind of the grown ups in the media, um, you know, who's, who at, at that time, you know, the the sort of the columnists and editor and editors and and the people who sort of advanced the particular thesis of someone, where they thought about her at all, she was known as as Matthew Hidden put it as as a flake, and you know, I don't think that that was you know. There, there's a way of viewing that as something that is. Just, just sort of gendered and, and misogynist, and I'm sure that there was was something of that in there. But I think, in general, it was also because she didn't seem like ferociously ambitious, and and didn't, you know, translate her kind of charisma and and so on into something which felt like it was ready for the for the big stage. So that was the general and the the line on her that was that she was. Um, talented but maybe didn't make the most of that talent and that just changed for me basically in one night so she'd been elevated to, to deputy leader against her will madeline chapman's got a brilliant piece on the spin-off about um how she basically never wanted any any of this really genuinely seemed not to i, I sort of buy the theory but she she was deputy leader and and she ran to become mp of man albert pride so then she'd always been on the list and she'd actually lost uh, the Auckland Central um, electorate battle to to, to Nikki Kay in, in 2011. She so we we put on a debate. The spinoff at the time did, did lots of silly things. We try and still do that now. Uh, we we put on a debate in a shipping container um, out the back of an Indian restaurant in Sandringham, and it was her against Jeff Simmons and uh, Julianne Genta and. You know, like that, they're all pretty good uh, politicians. That they all have a pretty reasonable command of policy. Jacinda Ardern showed up and just scorched, and it was it was night and day from what she'd been before. And I don't know whether she was put in some kind of, you know, they used to joke that uh, Kobe Bryant got flown to Germany to be given this kind of freaky blood treatment that that. Um, combated the aging process it almost felt like she'd done some kind of political intellectual version of that she just had total command of the whole of politics every policy area she was so articulate and I was just like who is she she predictably kind of cleaned everyone's clocks in the electorate six months later you know you had the disastrous poll result Andrew Little uh falls on his sword and suddenly she's leader and Jacinda Mania and all that happens. Um, and, you know, so look, the, so that's the kind of the, the, the backstory. And, you know, she came from there to, to, so we basically had to deal with the fact that there was this, this huge kind of almost uh, irrational level of, of love and interest in her. And, Basically, my theory is she almost never had a, a normal relationship with the media or public at any point. It was either completely unsustainably just just over the top, or you know, lately these this kind of you know completely irrational levels of you know her becoming a victor for how just fed up everyone is. And in between times, a whole lot of things went on, and that's basically what I'm going to try and tease out with. Um, with with Mad and, and Toby here, uh, because you know this is someone who does have a degree in communications, who has you know it's it's 
absolutely true that they do a lot of research and that she, uh, you know, she thinks very hard about how things look. By the way, that's not unique to her. Every prime minister is really good at media. Every prime minister thinks really hard about how things are going to land. That's the whole of the job. You need to get elected. So, like, that's not something kind of sinister or that kind of denigrates her in any way at all. But it, it is something that she was uncommonly good at, and I think it's important to kind of, as we look back on on her time as prime minister, try to figure out what it means and and how she might be replaced because she really did also straddle the kind of the true end of the period of primacy for legacy media and the and the move into this different media era. I'm just going to try and process all that with uh, Toby Manhire and Madeline Chapman here on The Fold. Tēnā korua, uh, Madeline, Toby, welcome to The Fold. Thanks for, for stopping by. Kia ora. You're welcome. Uh, <laughs> This is so weird. Um, Toby, do you buy this thesis that her mastery of communication was the defining characteristic or, or the, the most important way of understanding her as a leader? Yeah, probably. Although I think that is not to be underestimated insofar as I think sometimes we talk, to think about communications as being the same thing as spin, which it really isn't. And you know, there's been a lot of commentary over the last 24 hours about the response to two incredible, unimaginable events, namely the terrorist attacks in Christchurch and the the COVID uh, early times, and the ability to communicate successfully in those moments is leadership. Um, it's not communications alone. I mean, she did do a communications degree, I think, at Waikato University. Uh, maybe her biographer, Madeline Chapman, can tell us more about that. But it, but it's, I guess, I guess I'd say yes. But I don't think we should imagine that that is damning her with faint praise. Yeah, because I, I agree that I think there's a there's a school of thought that 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 is all she is, or that, or that that is kind of immaterial. But if you can't communicate well, you, you don't get to be prime minister yeah. at all. And because of what she went through, it was particularly kind of... And it's clearly not all that she was either. That's the other thing to yeah. say, which is a criticism that, that might be levelled. Um, and, and sort of to, to flow on from that, what how, you know, you, you know you've worked in the, in the UK, you've observed a lot of political leaders in that time. Do you... Do you think that the way that she kind of related to media and, and with with that kind of mastery of communications was, you know, as, as has been, you know, particularly from international media, that there is this, that under that understanding of her as being like truly brilliant. There was was like a kind of globally significant quality that she had. Yeah, although I think there's another part to that, which is the compassion or the empathy or, you know, the kindness or whatever you want to call it, which isn't necessarily the same as communication skills. If you look at someone, a lot of a lot of leaders, a Clinton or a Blair, absolute masters of communication and pretty good at doing the old having a beer with a voter type thing. I think Jacinda Ardern was different uh, both domestically, certainly at the outset and in terms of the way she was perceived internationally because she did have that empathy. That's a that's a that's a real thing. And uh I think it was there as well. I don't think it was a performance, you know? I think to a certain extent someone like Blair could be 
could stand accused of performing a level of uh, of compassion. I'm not saying it was a fake particularly, but with Jacinda with Ardern, that, that's her in public and in private, you know, or at least that's my experience when she's pretty hard to get any 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 kind of gossip out of in the, in the green room in the way that some politicians love that sort of thing. And in some sense, maybe that's what made it harder for her as things went on was that she was empathetic, which sometimes probably is not that unlike having... People who are empathetic don't necessarily have the thickest of skins. And when you're being targeted by some pretty vituperative, horrible people uh, saying false things about you and your family and threatening your life, then that takes its toll, I think. Mm. Um, Mad, you... It's like such a... (laughs) Heck, line, but you did literally write the write the book on on Jacinda Ardern, and in the process of that, I think read or watched basically literally every every word um, in in terms of interviews with her. Despite her decline to participate, you still were not short of of material. You know how how would you you know ha- having done all that, you you wrote this piece this morning, uh, we, we we published this morning about that you know basically saying that you truly believe that she didn't want to to be prime minister you know to what extent do you, you know when you're reading back or, or thinking about those interviews did the you know does the just interesting that you you know you portrayed in the book match the 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 one that we sort of experienced through her media appearances i think it's quite that was the thing that i noticed was that she was almost frustratingly for someone trying to write a, a thrilling book about her, um, extremely consistent, like literally from birth was extremely consistent. And so there didn't seem to be any pivot in her approach to politics all of a sudden, either when she became an MP or when she became deputy leader or when she became leader or when she became prime minister. It was all the same. And I think that is where you know, as Toby said, the empathy and the communication in those big events, it makes sense that those would be where she really thrived because that is what she kind of was very good at as a person and as a student at high school and then as a, you know, uh, student politician and things like that. That's what That was her strength. And um, then once you get into the day-to-day and the parts where... You have to be sacrificing, basically sacrificing people's needs for other people's needs and you're ultimately going to piss a lot of people off and then that's suddenly where things become a bit trickier for someone who is more leaning towards the want everyone to get along and uh, just want to make some some nice changes. Yeah, one thing which, you know, you know, in, in terms of that that sort of prehistory, because she was sort of around. I mean, she she lives near here. We would sort of bump into her at the the cafe underneath the office periodically. But but even before then, she was kind of just you know she'd go to the same kind of openings or, or concerts that you would, and that sort of extended to. She seemed like she, where, where a lot of politicians are very interested in the gallery and have almost no interest beyond that. I feel like I think that I seem to remember her like following you on social media when you were like maybe her intern or something and would like maybe even like message you like she had this like and that didn't feel like it was a 
a sort of an attempt to court favour. It was just like she's a person who reads things. Yeah, there's a. It was an almost embarrassing um, moment where I was asked to write this book in 2019, and I thought, oh, I should. I guess I should follow her on Instagram. And I went to follow her, and it said follow back. And I was like, when did she follow me? And I think she followed me because I had made some political meme in the 2017 election campaign. And that was it, you know, and I hadn't even noticed. But it was like, that was, she was just kind of, you look at who she follows. I mean, even now, I don't think she's unfollowed anyone. So when you look at who she follows, there's some kind of, it's a random assortment of like, local comedians who she was familiar with as an Auckland MP in 2010, and then global leaders <laughs> and, you know, things like that. So it is uh, – and she didn't seem to shift much there. But you're right. I, I spoke to so many people trying to get anything about her, you know, um, you know, admittedly anything juicy or a little bit dramatic about her before she became an MP or before she became Prime Minister. And it was like even the people who knew her were like, no, she's just, you know, she didn't, she didn't really tell us about her personal life. You know, she was still even then just a little bit aware of um, what happens when public figures have you know a bit chatty so I think I finally got somebody who flattered with her in 2001 to talk to me and I thought I got the biggest scoop in the world because I was like I can't believe I got someone to talk about Jacinda and then when I bumped into her at the cafe she was like oh yeah I heard you talk to my flatmate so even then <sighs> that person who hasn't spoken to her in you know close to 20 years still checked in just to make sure it was all good to have they a all chat. had to check with Klaus Schwab, <laughs> former all their, their handlers, and the, that, that's a Roger Stone reference Roger Stone. for those who aren't really, really <laughs> fucked upadly online. Um, so, I mean, but the, the reason I, I pointed out was not just be, just to kind of give you the opportunity to kind of <laughs> brag about your followers, more about like she she had this kind of she has this holistic mastery of of media understands what it's for and how to how to use it you know i think the most prominent example of that was was these facebook lives that were like massively popular they were candid enough that they did feel like they were revealing and and it was a way of you know people got mad they thought it was talking around the media but i think it was also just like she just that that was who she was and it was a really useful kind of mechanism for her you know do you do either of you want to just talk about that social media think, aspect of I think that's her? a really interesting point, and I think she is probably, I don't know if pioneering is overstating it, but that's, the, you know, she's not alone in among leaders around the world in adopting those technologies, and there's probably been theses written about this, but going past the idea that you have a full team that produce your social media and make sure all the angles are right, and if you look a bit... You know, if you look a bit like you've got a stain on your T-shirt because your toddler vomited on it, all the better. You know, it sort of moved towards authenticity, and she embraced that. And the interesting thing is I think that that does start to wear with ordinary people over time. And at some point it doesn't have to be one or the other. It doesn't have to be authentic and real or confected and designed for political purpose. The two, there can be there can be parts of each column, right? And over COVID, certainly there was a point at which it was incredibly useful for her to do things. She did this 
pretty much for the duration, where she would come after a a, a, a big cabinet decision, post-cabinet press conference at which the information would be disseminated via the usual mainstream sources. And then she'd go home and do a Facebook Live and talk to people about it. And that was very useful. The problem with that as well is that you actually start to see some of the, you know, genuinely appalling, venomous <laughs> comments that come back at you. So there's there's that and people organised um, as things got tighter. But also I do think after a while, and this goes to a broader point, which isn't really your question about the exposure, you know, and the point that's been made quite a lot now that over the course of five years, she probably had about 10 years worth of screen time uh, for reasons that weren't within her control. Um, but in terms of that social media version of leadership, I do think after a period of time, it starts to seem less fresh, original, authentic, and more confected, uh, deliberate, and even sometimes rightly or wrongly cynical. Ned, you you know she she's someone who's been prime minister for for most of of your adult life, and not wanting to make you the voice of a generation or anything, but do you? Do you sort of feel like that that idea of her, through really no real fault of her own, but because of the kind of combination of Facebook Lives and then the 1PMs and just the general volume of communications you know, that happens in an era where there is just a lot of, of that available, that, that you know, young people who used to be some of her biggest partisans, there's a sense that they're a little, you know, that they've, She's been become kind of overexposed, and and some of that has kind of dissolved into a kind of apathy about her. I think maybe I don't know if it's necessarily a like a generational thing because I know that there are still. It's one of those things where you see people when they first get into politics. She is the first person that they like, and she's the first person that they're interested. In. And then perhaps as people become way too into politics, then you start to spread and get everyone else in as well. And I think that is essentially like she is almost like she's the gateway. Yeah, she's the gateway into um, into politics in a very good way. But it also means that potentially then people go, oh, okay, well, I don't need these things explained to me on a Facebook Live. I will read them in a, you know, very seriously written news report. Um, or I'll find a, like a, a more kind of laneway version of a politician to, to kind of that's more represents a cooler version of my identity. Or just have utopian utopian ideas shattered by the reality of <laughs> yes, politics. or that. So I think the interesting thing will be going into this next election that there will be people who have voted more than once who have never had to consider voting for somebody who isn't as who doesn't feel as accessible or uh, down to earth or you know up with the times as as everyone else. Although looking at the Labour candidates, they're not actually that far from her in, in that sense of like age and onlineness. Um, but certainly, like national, you know, having a prime minister who doesn't. Go on, um, go on Facebook Live in a sweater will be uh, will be new for some, for many people. Let's not forget Bill English's walk run though, and other 
pizza Facebook he, he did triumphs. Was it, it is true. He had a bad pizza once, right? He put um, spaghetti. spaghetti on pizza. That's right, right. But I think that's the that's the thing is like he did it and got mocked for it largely, and then Jacinda does very similar things. To be honest, you know, bake a cake, things like that, and um, that's great and is applauded. So I think that is that key where you can't just go on, be yourself on social media, and people will like you because lots of people don't like lots of people for being <laughs> themselves. I don't so, want to see the real version. I yeah. want to see the podium version. So I think uh, for for some politicians, it has opened a new way that there will be new types of huh, new types of leaders. Um, and for others, it'll be like, this is still not a thing that you should be trying to do because it's not your strength. Yeah, it's funny, right? Cause because she was our prime minister for five years, all of the kind of shock of the new that created Jacinda Mania sort of fades away and she's just that's the person who's just there all the time and so that the that novelty element of having a prime minister who dresses cool and and like knows things about uh cultural stuff is is you know it's it's gone for us but it might also depending on who gets elected you know you kind of go back to you know there's always those things over summer where there's like what book will you be reading and and what's your favourite New Zealand song? And, and a lot of the time they feel like it's some kind of press handler has kind of put them together, mm. whereas was Jacinda's were actually, uh, you know, se- se- seemed real. But they, but they both, but they both, they both were real. But also as your job starts to include things like, you know, many international summits dealing with internal ructions and whips trying to look after large caucuses, your ability to say frankly what you're reading over summer and rather than deputing it to a member of your team I mean like let's let's, let's be real you know <laughs> I was just reading her 2017 um, address at the campaign launch which was this amazing thing and I, I think you know probably the biggest I used the word in my write-up of the piece Beatlemania you know and it, and it felt it felt I, I don't I don't I can't say I have first-hand experience of Beatlemania but you know the Jacinda mania thing sometimes didn't feel like that crazily hyperbolic the Event was in the town hall. There were there was like uh, impromptu singing. The crowd was so big that they had to fill the you know the the the, the other chamber uh, in the town hall and Q Theatre was also spillover with screens in there. It was insane. And in that speech, there's some stuff that's really quite sweet about. It. I hope my sister's watching in London. I'm going to check if you are. All this sort of stuff that just felt so kind of. Um, it just felt so human and sort of it, it conveyed some of the sort of amazement and real, like, nor here's a normal person. And just over time, you can't do that. You know, over time, the more you kind of pull out, here's some cards for some kids, here's some, even if you're writing your own speeches, you're the fucking prime minister now. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's your life. There's, you know, and the more you try and pull your real life into it to show your realness, the more it seems like it's a contrivance. The Fold is brought to you by O Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa, with over 4,000 out-of-home advertising sites nationwide across both street furniture and retail centres. I'm super grateful to O Media for enabling us to make unmissable connections with Kiwis. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. 
Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. Jacinda Mania and its kind of long tail um, stardust. God, these names were like quite heinous, but unfortunately they're, they're, they're the shorthand we have to use. It did... It presented a real challenge to cover because you were you're covering an election where you've got like Bill English, you know, who peaked in terms of the pop cultural zeitgeist with the walk run, with like kind of a pop star. And how do you do that in a way that is sort of equitable and and also you you sort of you can't not cover the phenomenon, but you also have to try and assess them as a politician and do it in two and a half minutes. Like to what extent was that that kind of supernova glow around her that she had for quite some time, a real challenge for particularly the kind of the big show media, the the sort of 6pm news and the, and the newspapers, do you think? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the stardust and that was Bill English's term that he used in one of the debates, I think. And in the book that came out after the election, if, if, after every election, Stephen Levine who's this very cool, smart guy uh, at Victoria University, puts out a book which includes a whole lot of... comes out of a conference, which is people reflect on the election. The the name of the book uh, in 2017 was... or 2018 when it would come out was Stardust and Substance. And I think that kind of was a pretty good title because the problem with just going with Stardust is that you're accepting what was... I mean, it wasn't heavily pejorative, but it was meant kind of as a as a light insult, you know, by by on the basis of what wasn't there. But there was also substance. What was extraordinary, though, is that, and this, I guess, was the challenge for everyone covering it at the time, was that it was true that the policy platform was unchanged, and the media obviously plays a role in this, but it told you something about the power of a personality, the power of an individual to change things. Because when Andrew Little saw the writing on the wall and uh, talked to Jacinda Ardern and the, 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 the change happened and Mads, Mads written about this in her book beautifully and talked about in a piece that's on the site now about um, you know Jacinda Ardern being a reluctant prime minister, she didn't want to be prime minister that still that changed everything, you know? And and so how could you not look at the personality? How can you not cover this phenomenon? How can you not focus on a kind of global fascination, absorption in this force of personality? Again, it doesn't have to be, uh, uh, it doesn't have to be the same thing as claiming superficiality. Agreed. I mean, I think that's the, you know, there's such, the leaders of the parties are obviously the leaders and the figureheads and the spokespeople and the big decision makers. And so there are many hats to wear in that position and as Prime Minister, obviously, as well. And she just wore the hat of the spokesperson and the personality of the party exceptionally well in a way that you know many Davids before her had failed to do (laughs) so it's like that's you have to acknowledge you know unfortunately some things are noticed more than others and you know communication and personality is often noticed immediately more than 
uh, political, I don't know. Naus. Naus. I was trying to get the pronunciation of that correct. Um, and I think that's where, you know, it, it made sense that that spike would happen in the first instance and then would happen again any time she had those big moments of being, quote-unquote, a human uh, on the world stage and then starts to come down once you get into uh, where actually the personality is not the most important thing. People want to see a policy and how it's going to affect their life and what that means uh, for their family. So, and that's, as a captain of a team, you know, captains of sports teams are not sometimes but not always the best player on the team. And that's for a reason, because you don't have to be the best player on the team to be the captain. I think it suggests uh, the different types of candidates that can come as leader and prime minister when people realise that actually running a country is not one person's job. And potentially if it was all, you know, in her terms, she was extremely successful because a lot of the things she had to do were that the spokesperson and the person delivering the speech who can get everyone on board and be empathetic. And if she had been uh, serving for six years where that was not a thing that people cared about as much because of a cost of living crisis or, you know, things like that, then her terms would have looked very different. And now when they're picking a new leader, it's kind of like, well, do you go, do you, try and get some of that personality again, make that hat bigger, or do you just revert back to who can who can push through those legislative changes? I think one of the things to add to that is that, you know, though in terms of the sporting analogy of whether or not it's the, the best player on the team or not, one thing that I think is easy to forget about Jacinda Ardern's qualities is just her immense recall. I think most of us, certainly I, just can't contain that amount of information in my brain. It's not just containing the information, it's finding a way to access it and deliver it in complete sentences while remembering a bunch of other uh, conflicting ideas and facts and pitfalls and fish, hawk, fish hooks and, and pratfalls. It's just it's just incredible, and I think I think we sometimes get used to it when we watch politicians, and some are better than others. But both to be able to be that leader, but also to be able to access that information. I mean, I I must have interviewed her long form like six, seven times, sometimes for over an hour. And admittedly, I wasn't normally you know doing full on um, gotcha interviews, but her ability to cover a real wide range, access the information, speak like a human. Man, not many people can do that. Yeah, it's funny, right? We, we kind of describe Christopher Luxon as as gaff prone because he makes gaffes sometimes. Like, well, he's probably basically just like a normal politician. The problem is the the, the archetype is now just under a dirt. Just it's unimaginable yeah. that you would ever make a gaff. That's why the um, what was the arrogant prick was just like, what she yeah. she did something like, and that was what we should have known she was resigning then because it's like the, the a, a single crack had yeah. come. And speaking of gaffes, the, the one of the, the 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 one of the the gaffes that she committed were ones that she said before she became anywhere near like prime minister, like calling Boris Johnson 
the gaff man. <laughs> the, you know, people were sort of just kind of mining through her ancient tweets in order to find her. I, I have to say, <laughs> prehistoric. Like, for all the thesis <laughs> of her as this kind of master of social media, she was a bad tweeter. Very like, bad tweeter. And I think it's because it was just like she just did the tweets that you're supposed to do, but they just weren't in her. You could just tell that she was like, oh, I suppose right. I have to write this stupid oh, yeah. take. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, the, the other thing about her, you know, all of that, that empathy and command and, and the way she looked and spoke and so on was that the international media were real into that and she became this kind of anti-Trump uh, figurehead in many ways, which was a huge asset to her for a while until it became a real negative. To, to what extent uh, was that sort of international media reaction like a really, like a, a crucial kind of indicator for the electorate's relationship with her, but also for the way that local media kind of had to watch some of that happening a bit jealously at times? Yeah, I mean, she's had more international attention than any New Zealand leader ever, and probably forever. Um, and it is that thing where, like, yeah, in, in any regular time, international media paying attention to New Zealand for good reasons, because of their Prime Minister, is like, you should jump on that, absolutely. But there was just so much. And for, you know, maybe Toby can speak to the reasons behind this a bit more, but she was very, uh, ran a tight ship locally in terms of allowing access and, and that sort of um, thing, which, you know, that potentially that's where that being accessible to the people... Uh, I know she, I think she has mentioned it or talked about it before. She wanted to be accessible to the people rather than, um, more so than journalists, essentially. It was speak directly to the voters and the people who this affects. And so that's all well and good. But again, yeah, it, it doesn't necessarily need to be an either or situation. And so then it, when at times it looked like it was the people and then Vogue, it starts to it starts yeah. to grate on um, local media. Who, again, it's not like local media's been shut out. Like, there's plenty of she. she, yeah, she was there every day of, at one pm yeah, for a, for a long time. She had a lot of screen time, answered a lot of questions. But it's a there's that kind of that next step of going behind, you know, going behind the scenes a little bit, getting that exclusive talk, and um, instead, you know, those those chats happen with uh, international outlet or perhaps a uh, women's day occasionally if it's going into an election and so yeah there was there was certainly a bit of um prickliness there it was i mean it's interesting isn't it because it wasn't that long ago that the prime minister john key was paying however many thousand dollars to get 90 seconds on David Letterman. Yeah, that, that was that was the thing. We thought it was amazing, but <laughs> and, it, it, was, it was partner content. It was partner content. And and probably well worth every every dollar spent. So 100%. so so no shade there, except that it's quite an unusual problem to face when you're a prime minister in a pretty small, mostly irrelevant country at the bottom of the world. Oh no, we've had too many <laughs> demands for interviews from Vogue, from Time magazine, from the Sunday time, you know, like I mean, an, an unusual thing, and the the, the level of it be interesting at some point. Um, interesting at some point, Andrew Campbell and the other in the media team will be able to talk probably about some of that absolute deluge of bids that they got over those years. And I at the time was 
at, at certain times was writing for an overseas title, so I was sort of on both sides of the fence for a while. But there was certainly a point at, th- at which I think it was recognised that the local outlets felt pissed off, probably with some reason that there she was appearing on all these uh, glossy overseas uh, channels and, and pages of magazines, and they wanted their long they wanted to sit down too because it's it's true that you know fronting a lot but it is just it is different to have a proper sit down and when you're a political journalist that that's what you want you want to have a bit of time with with the most important person in the country and i think they recognize that and that so that did turn after a period of time and then it became it was it's interesting i'm i'm sure you got lots of these mad but for a time there i would get every week some journalist at an outlet overseas going, I don't know if you could help me. I'm really trying hard to get some time with Jacinda Ardern for a piece on how Jacinda Ardern is the greatest thing in the history of all time, you know. <laughs> did you get lots of those? I did, and then my answer was always like, the only response I've ever got are Instagram DMs. <laughs> like, that's ironically all bumping into her at a cafe or at the supermarket because she shopped at the same countdown as I did. Yeah, it's, it's just, if you really, really want it, go to, go to Kind or Crave and sit there long <laughs> enough. You'll get your, you'll get your um, moment. Just, just sort of, I mean, a version of that was her decision, you know, which I think was like quite an interesting one to to quit the weekly ZB slots, and the stated reason for that was to give other outlets a, a, mm. some access to her. There was also an undercurrent that Hosking had gotten maybe a bit too sort of maniacal with his um, with his style and tone with her. And, and in terms of the like the, the that thesis of her as just kind of she shies away from any kind of hard questions, that that was a big plot point to it. To what extent do you think that was a, a, a fair criticism, or it was just you know it kind of is like fair for a prime minister to decide where they go? I think it was a mistake. I mean, I think just the size of Hosking's audience, absolutely. He had got he had begun to editorialise ever more, you know, both during the interview, but also <clears throat> either side of the interview, saying some 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 pretty pretty toxic things, together with the, his um, partner and, and uh, the early edition host Kate Hawksby. And you know, I there's, I'm not surprised that in PMO you'd be like, fuck this. But sometimes you just have to put a peg on your nose and carry on. I think, given his audience, given her ability, you know, to then they will get to the end of the year and exchange gifts, got harder. But I think whether they whether they found a way to, to for it just to be ZB that was dropped, and yes, it was dressed up as we want to do more and different things, but it's like there were still both breakfast TV channels, which I think you can tell me, Duncan, I think you have quite substantially smaller audiences than the, than the radio. Certainly, there's it beat. I mean, they're, they're, it's real. <laughs> Sorry, this is like real. This is a media de- podcast. This is real deep fold, but because they're measured so differently, one talks about their cumulative weekly audience, and one talks talks about their momentary audience. That it's, it's very difficult to compare okay. them. But I would, I would, I would guess. I would, if I had to guess, I'd say that radio, particularly ZB and, and Morning Report, have have larger audiences than the the breakfast shows at any given time. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it was a mistake. I think potentially, you know, that was after all of the early COVID stuff. And I wouldn't be surprised if, um, you know, somebody in the Prime Minister's office 
basically during that COVID period, there was certainly a lot of media out there, but everyone was just watching her speak at one o'clock most of the time to get the news. And essentially that's her just cutting out the middleman and saying, oh, I can deliver this news directly, probably better than you could if you cut it up and wrote around it. And so by doing that for that long and it working essentially, like that certainly worked in those early days of the pandemic, it's sort of, I would go, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if you go, well, actually this is, you know, we talk for an hour at one o'clock and everyone listens and now we have to go and put up with Mike Hosking for, you know, 20 minutes or whatever um, and just go, well, we'll just go direct, you know, or that's not our audience anyway. So it's a, it's probably potentially that sort of a, we don't need, you know, we don't need that anymore because we know how to do it ourselves. And ultimately when you don't have a, at times, literal captive audience, uh, that's not the case. It's funny, right? The 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 1 p.m. briefings, which is probably where I want to, to kind of conclude this, uh, you know, they were they were such an extraordinary event, albeit one that, that felt very natural and, and, and necessary at the time, in that you you got to watch the news being made in a way that it was completely un, really unimaginable, especially at scale. A lot of people watching the news being made uh, prior to that. And the interesting thing was that, you know, I spoke to Wayne Wright, who um, was sort of revealed as the, the funder of Sean Plunkett's the, the platform and it just become a kind of a vector for the disgruntled people who said he watched that and saw the, you know, first Jessica, then Tova, as he described it, as evidence of a far too cosy relationship between the media and Odin. And then there was a whole other group of people who, when she was uh, repeatedly asked a tough question, were like, who are these these treasonous people? And it was a single object that that resulted in these really wildly different, um, you know, responses from different segments of the electorate. It, Looking back on the 1pm briefings, you know, do you think that they ultimately, as, as popular and necessary as they were for a period of time, that they ultimately, in terms of what they stoked in, in the electorate and, and how ultimately they seem to have, for all her brilliance at them, drained the life out of her, uh, you know, or been part of that, that uh, you know, how, how will and should those be remembered as a sort of a, a political media spectacle? Um, it was such a crazy time, wasn't it? I mean, I think if we go back right to the start of that period, those ad first address was from the Prime Minister's office and then things moved to the theatrette um, on, on the ground floor of, of the Beehive there. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that we it certainly felt like we were sort of on a war footing. And both internally, the number of people who, you know, there was sort of a Politburo that was formed of the most senior ministers and officials. There was an all-of-government uh, effort that was established. And the Prime Minister spoke down the barrel directly to the country. And it was necessary and it worked. And it was incredible. And it was acclaimed the world over. The problem is how do you then unwind that? How do you return to a level of normalcy, both in terms of your internal structures, but also in terms of the way that you communicate with the public? 
And it was a conversation that was had with editors when it was happening too. Is like, when do we stop broadcasting this 1 p.m. every day? Because well, there's, there's like a political calculus too, right? They, they were heading into an election yep. and it was really popular. It was really popular. It was really popular. The numbers were off the chart, you know, and they were also, it's also there were, there were some pretty unpleasant remarks, some very, some, some reasonable criticisms made of gallery journalists, you know, but also some pretty unreasonable stuff. We're talking, of course, about al fresco dining requests oh, from Barry, yeah. Barry <laughs> <Sofa>. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> uh, So, you know, uh, I mean, uh, you know, that whole how the sausage made discussion is quite a boring one, I think. But I think it became a difficulty in terms of how to get back from that incredible time where everyone was running high on adrenaline and the whole machine had to change its shape and to then kind of to, to, to untangle it and get back to normal, I think, was, was, was the problem. Yeah, I mean, I think that's where they, I mean, it worked going into the next, you know, going into that 2020 election. But then as basically this extraordinary event where she excels every time, started to transition into ordinary New Zealand where she was uh, less popular, put it that way, um, then that's when the, the wheel started to fall off and suddenly those briefings were not positive watching or not working as they should because every announcement came with a genuine, you know, especially during that Delta lockdown, suddenly those became very contentious and... Actually, that was a thing where probably they didn't want to be in front of, not that she was doing all of them then anyway, but suddenly they didn't want to be in front of the cameras all the time getting all these hard questions and the the beautiful platform that they had built was sort of turning against them. Um, and, yeah, so then that's when suddenly it was uh, once a week and then uh, online only and then <laughs> <laughs> Ministry of Health website, you know, and it's like, and that was that would have been, equally deliberate because it's like, well, actually now people don't people don't like hearing from us so much, so let's just slowly back away into the bush. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it does, it, it's one of those kind of imponderables, like, you know, what, what might her prime ministership have looked like with different decisions there or just, just absent um, that weight. But, uh, yeah, it just just a, a really, you know, from, from a media perspective, I don't, Imagine that we'll ever see a either a prime minister or or a dynamic like that one. And thank you both so much for coming on the fold to, to chat about it. Cheers. The fold is brought to you by the Spin Off Podcast Network. It's hosted by Duncan Grieve, with production by Tiahe Butler and Samuel Robinson. Series production is by Jane Yee. That was The Fold, brought to you by our partners at O-Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa. Huge thanks to O-Media for sponsoring this episode of The Fold and enabling us to make unmissable connections with Kiwis. Kia ora e te iwi, Te Aihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a spin-off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.